трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. Hello and welcome back to this uh, delayed edition of the Russian Football News Podcast. We're sorry we weren't on at our usual time. We've had a lot of conflicting schedules going on, which is unfortunate. But the main thing is we're here now and we're here today. We're going to review the uh, Russian teams in Europa League and Champions League action from the last week. I'm also going to look at the case of Ararat Moscow, which is a bit of a crazy crisis in the third tier. And as per usual, my guests, um, it's actually quite strange because usually we've also, we've obviously got Andrew in Siberia and we've got Toka in Denmark, but actually they're both in completely different locations this week. So first of all, uh, Toka Thelade, how are you, sir? Just tell the listeners where you are at this moment. Hey, Tom, it's good to be back. I missed the last podcast, so I'm really excited for this one. Uh, yeah, as you said, I'm not in, I'm not in Denmark anymore. I recently moved to Malta, so I'm enjoying life under the, under the sun with a new job and everything. So that's quite exciting. Bit of relaxing on the beach, I hear. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, not bad. And uh, Andrew, you're in. Uh, I wouldn't say less sunnier climes, but approaching that way. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, no, I'm just just back in England for a quick break with my with my two daughters. Um, so yeah, unusually, we're all within within an hour of each other now. So quite an odd odd podcast for us. Yeah, it's not, not bad. What? Uh, just a quick question before we get on to the football. What's your thought? Is this the first time your daughters have been in England? And what do they think of it? Oh no, they've been a few times. They they love it. They're absolutely obsessed with um, with coming over. Um, and you know they get to see things like sheep and cows and everything. But more importantly, more importantly, they kicked a football around yesterday with their um, their cousins, and they showed a lot of promise. So you know the Russian women's team could be improving in the future. Perfect stuff. And um, so let's get on to the the European action. I'm just going to read the results out before we get into the Champions League. We had Siskar away at Benfica, and they recorded a really surprising 2-1 victory. Absolutely stunning. Spartak, less fortunate, really. A couple of unsavoury beds there as well in their 1-1 draw away at Maribor. I mean, Toka, we've got to start with Siska there. Everybody was back in Benfica. I was back in Benfica. I think they'd sort of not lost a home game in 2017 or something like that. That's in all competitions, by the way. So a really stunning result for them to go and get. Yeah, I think you said it uh, perfectly. I was, I was literally stunned. I mean, Siska even went behind and it was like, okay, this is a usual pattern. Siska start hopelessly in the Champions League, finish fourth in a, in a difficult group, but then it turned around and, and went to it, two one in, in Lisbon. It's, and it, that's not an easy place to, to play football. So that was really an amazing result and a great start to the Champions League campaign. And I remember from the podcast we did a few weeks ago, we were all a bit critical about their chances. Uh, they haven't really improved the squad that much, but they they really made us look foolish that uh, <laughs> that night in Lisbon because that was a that was a brilliant result. I think really one of the the better results and better performances by a Russian club in Europe in the last couple of seasons. So that's I'm very optimistic now. It's it's difficult to get the hands down <laughs> from the celebration. Yeah, I mean Andrew. I mean the main. I mean I suppose we'll get onto it a bit as well. But the main question now is they've had that great result, like Toka says. But now, how do they build on it for the rest of the campaign? But first of all, before we start getting into that sort of negative spiral that I tend to end up in, (laughs) it's just your presence, I think. I just, as soon as I hear your two voices, I just think, oh, God, not again. (laughs) But, you know, let's give them a bit of praise first, but then we'll look on that aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. They, I mean, stunned is the right word. I mean, it was, it was absolutely. Uh, absolutely fantastic performance. I honestly thought they looked like experienced, confident continental campaigners. Um, and I mean, 
I mean, for Timur Jamalettinov to to get on and and score the winner, and not just score the winner though, he looked so confident on the ball. Um, and I thought, you know, Pontus Vermeer was absolutely magnificent in front of the defence, and it had such a critical, critical role to play in in this competition. Um, they and Victor Vassin even had a pretty decent shot at the end, you know, where he controlled it, turned, got the shot away, and Jamalettinov taps it in. But um, overall, I thought. Absolutely fantastic. I really was not counting on that at all. I was going to say, before we before the campaign, Benfica away and Manchester United away, I'd almost be prepared to write those those games off, um, target the home games, and hopefully Basel away get something out of that. But um, what a start. And it really changes the complexion of the group, doesn't it? Because now you'd say, yeah, I'd say it's pretty close between them and Benfica for, for second place after that result. Yeah, I mean, Toka Andrew mentions there, uh, Jamal Yetinov. What a start he's had to his Cisco career. That's his second professional goal in two professional games, I think. Yeah, it looks really good. And, and you can see that at least some good things come from uh, the club's lack of investment in new players because it means that a guy like him can get a shot of first-team experience. He can get some playing time. And, and he's really starting to pay back for the, for the, for the confidence that he's been given by the coach and the... Um, yeah, and the trust that he's been given, and it's really great to see. It's great to see a young guy like him emerge from almost out of nothing because he's been, he's been really good. In 2017, he he got a bit of playing time at the start of the year, and he's just slowly been been building on and become better, better, and getting more and more playing time. And it's it's really great to see an exciting young talent like him emerge like this. And uh, right now, his future seems very bright, and he'll certainly be one to watch in the future. And I mean, it's, it's not like Siska strikers are that great. Vitinho, of course, scored against Benfica, but Olenada hasn't really been that good. So, so he, he could easily become a, a starter in, in the, in the near future or finish the season as a starter, actually, because it's, it's very even up front and he definitely has some momentum right now. The only thing I would mention about the Vitinho goal is a penalty and probably should never have been a penalty, but we'll brush over that one. And, um, I mean, Andrew, someone someone has to score the penalties though. They they don't they don't go in by themselves. Yeah, I suppose. Okay, fair enough. Um, but Andrew, this of course didn't happen by accident. So what would you say that Siska and particularly manager Viktor Goncharenko did right on the night with his tactics, etc.? Well, you mentioned uh, Toka mentioned Olenaire, and um, actually, uh, in hindsight, before the game, I thought. I almost groaned a little bit at Olenaire being selected over someone like Field or Chaff. I actually more expected him to play as one up front, but playing the two up front, uh, I think was actually the key because as we've said a million times before, the defence is, is aging and they need replacements. And that's never likely, well, the back three, I mean, specifically, they're not, they're not likely to, well, they don't have any challenges for their places. So Vasin and Berituski brothers, um, they just, uh, they're, they're always going to play, so they're not challenged. So that picked itself. But up front, I thought, having two bodies up front occupied the Benfica defence more than they possibly were expecting to be. You know, if you're, you've got to remember as well, don't forget, this is an absolutely massive journey. It's a, it's the longest journey CSK could possibly have in Europe, unless they played Las Palmas, I guess, but not that they're going to be in Europe anytime soon. But, um, you know, it's a long journey. Benfica would be expecting them to, Hopefully, sit back, sit, you know, defend deep for draw, and and they didn't do that. And uh, the two up front made 
uh, I think, in my opinion, a little bit more space for the midfielders to to actually create something. So I think that was a very bold choice. And that, for me, was one of the keys to, to the win. So credit to Gonchrenko for playing not just two up front, but trusting one of his, well, less informed strikers in Olenair, who I actually think had a reasonable game. Not, you know, not necessarily the most obvious way, but just physically he was there. He did a lot of running and, um, and I think that was key. I mean, Toko, would you go with that as well or is there anything else you'd like to add? I was, I was really pleased by seeing a Cisco uh, team that they were, they were good in defense. I mean, usually when you, when you think about Cisco Moscow and you think about Champions League, all these horrible mistakes and from, I can feel from the defense, they always come to mind. But, but against Benfica, they, they, they were good defensively. They didn't give any unnecessary chances away. They were cynical. I mean, obviously Benfica dominated the position. They had tons of shots on goal, but Cisco, I felt like Cisco were at least relatively in control. And it was, it was truly a pleasure to watch, uh, watch them be this good defensively. And, and then they were cynical when they got the chance in the other end of the game and, and that gave them three points. That's, that's really how you want to, to play if you want to get big, make big results in Europe. And that's what they've been lacking in the past. So it, it really seems that something has changed after Gonchorinko has taken over. And, and it looks like uh, he knows what he's doing in, in, uh, in Europe, unlike, unlike Slusky at the big parts of his career as a Cisco coach. So, uh, of course, you don't beat Bayern Munich with uh, Bata Borisov by coincidence. So, he's obviously a great European coach and, uh, and a great cup coach, Kondorenko. I mean, Andrew, I spoke about earlier, and we'll get on to this bit now, about how to follow up that win. They've got Man United at home next, which I think you're going to. So, what what are you expecting from that? Because, obviously, United's a bit of... Although, I'm not discrediting Benfica at all. Like I said, a very good record on, at home in Portugal. But Man United are the favourites of the group. And Siska, there's a bit of pressure on them now after that win in Benfica to perhaps go out there and perform against United. Yeah, I think you're actually very, very on ball there, Tom's, to say that there's a, there is that touch of pressure because that actually, if anything, has been one of the things that I think should have been a strength for Siska over the last few years is that people haven't, you know, the Siska fans haven't expected him to do much. But after that result, you're right there. There will be a touch of pressure. Um, approaching this game, well, I mean, you know, as a, as a Manchester United fan or anybody who watches English football or European football over the last few years knows that, knows Jose Mourinho's overall preferred style and especially away from home in Europe. Um, he's not likely, although he may, you know, he may change his tactics based on what he's seen, but he's not likely to be desperately expansive and I expect him to play the likes of Juan Mata and Marouane Fellaini as opposed to quicker in my opinion more dangerous attackers like Marcus Rashford or Anthony Martial and those are in fact the players who I think would cause the most damage to Cisco. Now if Manchester United play how I expect them to play um, then I expect this game to at the moment peter out into a draw um, which would be a fantastic result for Tesco. Four points after two games against the two stronger sides in the group. Um, however, it, a lot, a lot depends on Jose Mourinho's mood. If I'm honest, um, what I, if I was going to put my money on it, I'd say they, they'll play one up front. They'll be slightly more physical, slightly less pace, but more passing around the midfield. Tesco won't have so much possession, but I think that actually will will help them. So. I mean, I'm I'm being a bit positive for Tisca here. Um, I think a, I think a point is probably most positive, but I actually think that's probably most likely as well. 
I mean, Toko, would you agree there with the expectations? Do you think that actually could hinder them quite a lot? Because, I mean, Andrew says Man United could play that conservative way, which, of course, would benefit Siska. But to my mind, I'm still thinking there's still some really good play- I'm looking at someone like Mkhitaryan, for example, who can really sort of turn the game very quickly. And that could, if they lose that game against Man United and actually lose it by quite a heavy bit, that almost renders that Benfica result useless, doesn't it? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I don't think when Siska sat down before the group stage and, and calculated how many points they would need to, to advance from the group, I don't think they, they calculated uh, three or at least or just one point from the two Man United games. I think they looked at the games against Benfica and Basel and figured, okay, we'll need six points against uh, Basel and, and four against Benfica, and they're off to a, a great start already. And especially because of that great start, because they defeated Benfica, they can press, I would actually argue they can play with less pressure against Man United because they already have a three-point lead out to Benfica. They're off to a good start, so if they lose to Man United, who, of course, are the best team in the group, it's, it's not a disaster. They'll still be on second place in the group, so it will still look good for them. And about the result, I agree with Andrew, they, they definitely have a shot. I mean, United go to, to Moscow, I think they'll most likely be satisfied with a, with a single point. I mean, it's still early, and as long as you, you get points in their away games and, and win the home games you'll you'll win you'll get the first place most likely. Uh but so I'm I'm I i do not want to say I'm optimistic on Cisco's behalf but because obviously it's a huge task and we shouldn't get carried away already. But I don't think the the increased pressure is a problem for them. Not at all. Uh, I'd say it's actually the opposite. Okay, let's uh move on to the second Champions League game now and that was Maribor versus Spontag, which of course ended it in a one one draw. Um, a lot of people listening will be thinking about the flare incident, and I will get onto that shortly because I, I would like to sort of talk about that a bit. But Toka, another, you know, another bad result for Spartak really in the context of this season, which has gone so poorly so far. Yeah, and we have to say it: another bad European result for Spartak in general, another bad European result for Russia this season as well. Um, I wish I could say it was a surprise, but. All feeling, I just all week. I just had a bad feeling about this game. It would be so typical Spartak if they if they just fail to win a must win game against a, a, a team from from Slovenia. Uh, it's definitely it was definitely a must win game for Spartak. There's really no excuses. Uh, I know it was the debut, and many of the players has very little very little experience with Champions League football and all that. But they should have won, and and they only got one point. So. Now it's looking difficult for them already, and it's really not a good situation to be in. So it's an uphill battle from now on, and they've got to get back on the horses as quick as possible. And Andrew, from your point of view, and I'll come to, the, I'll give you the same question as well, Toka. What did Spartak do wrong, and perhaps even what did Maribor do right to counteract Spartak, the favourites? Well, I mean, my problem for me with with Spartak was that. They, they had the right players on the pitch. I don't think the team selection was the problem. Um, it was just the, the wastefulness in front of goal. I mean, you know, when you've got okay, Luis Adriano as a as a player, he's got a huge amount of European experience. You've got to remember how how many successful campaigns he had with Shakhtar Donetsk, and forget the AC Milan experience. I know that was that was not um, not a high point for his career, but he, you know, he's the sort of player who. I mean, I, I watched the replays again, and I couldn't believe some of the shots that he puts flying over the bar that were like three times over the height of the goal. And I thought, look, you, you, it's, it's just a game. Get your foot over the ball. Basic technique. 
Um, so you asked what what they did wrong. For me, it was it was it was just basic technique, really. Um, I, I I think possibly it's a I'm going to say a mental weakness, but we do see this so often, like Toko inferred. We see this so often from Spartak. It's not a surprise to see this in Europe. But I would like to say, look, it's not it's not all all doom and gloom. They did have a lot of build up play. They did create a lot of chances. Um, I mean, you, you can't keep saying that in a European campaign that's so relatively short, in the group stages at least. But at least there was that. Um, Maribor, what they did right, um, I guess they just were patient. You know, they um, perhaps they really did do their deep homework and realised, well, look, Spartak are, are always likely to leave some spaces open. Um, they they certainly didn't they certainly didn't sort of carve out a huge number of chances, but they kept their patience and. And, and in the end, it paid off for them. So Sparta are going to be looking back at this, and I'm worried now after this result that they will look back at this result and think this is the one that really was drop points that they shouldn't have um, they shouldn't have let slip. And if that cost them second place, then they are really never going to forgive themselves. Yeah, Toko, I'm just rewatching the uh, the highlight of the Maribor goal now, actually, and to me that looks very preventable, especially in the 85th minute where you've got to be. You know, seeing off Maribor there, and that you've got to start closing the game out, and that's what Spartak are so was so good at last year, and they've just not done it this time around. And it's actually it's exactly the opposite of what Siska did. I mean, when we spoke about Siska a few minutes ago, I said that they had this European, uh, they played the European, they, they, they were cynical, they closed the game on their chances, and they shut down their opponents, and that's exactly what Spartak didn't do. They had plenty of chances; they could easily have closed this game gone up 2-0, 3-0, and it would have been over. But instead, they kept the game open, and then, yeah, in the 85th minute, they defend horribly, and that's just that's just hopeless. And when you play European, when you play Champions League, that's something that should get you banned, that's something that should get you kicked out, because it just cannot happen. I mean, it's it's simply unforgivable. You have to be better in both ends of the pitch when you play at this stage, and I think perhaps it's, it's part of lacks of experience at this level. Perhaps they yeah, they, of course they did it in the league last season, but now the stage is so much bigger, and maybe maybe like it got to the head that oh shit, this is the Champions League. I don't know. It's they they really need to improve that if if they want to have any chances of just finishing third. I mean, we, we spoke so much about them possibly beating Liverpool or Sevilla, but let's not forget that Russian teams have finished below worse teams than Maribor in the champ- in the European groups in the past. So let's not take this third place for granted either. Yeah, I just want to talk a bit more about Maribor there and I'm thinking we talk about Spartak's lack of experience and then we say oh well they should be beating Maribor from the Slovenian league but Togra it's worth um, this is point to everybody really it's worth remembering that Maribor even though they're from sort of a minor league if you like they qualify for Europe on a consistent basis and as you said Togra they do have that European experience even if it does come up against the big sides all the time they find themselves on that losing side if you like but they they can probably sense that opportunity in European football and have a lot more professionalism about it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's very easy to get um, to get focused only on the big leagues when you talk about the Champions League. Of course, usually that would be Spain, Germany, France, England. But but also from a, a Russian uh, point of view, you can say, oh, this is Spartak, this is Zenit. They have so much money, they should be beating all these minor minor teams. But I mean, we, we see all these. Sensations we saw FC Copenhagen go to the, and this is very painful for me to say, but we saw FC Copenhagen go to the, to the group of uh, the round of sixteen a few years ago, and we saw them go very far in the 
in the Europa League as well. Basel has done brilliantly in the in the Champions League too. And these are clubs that are smaller than the Russian clubs. These are clubs that work with much smaller budgets than Spartak and Senate and Lokomotiv and all these clubs. But they still uh, really improve and they still do some amazing things in Europe. And that just shows that if you have the European experience, if you have a, a playing style that really fits, a playing style that really fits Europe, you can you can go very far. And that's just so. It, it's not a coincidence when a team like Maribor goes out and takes a point from, from Spartak. It's not just because Spartak are bad. It's also because these teams are actually doing something right. Yeah, and Andrew, I mentioned earlier about the flair that came from the Spartak fans that nearly hit the referee. And this is worrying. With I mean, people are talking about the World Cup next year, obviously. And this is very worrying. Well, it's, for me, absolutely right. It's worrying me on two levels. One... Firstly, just the, the, the pure fact that flares are just so easily brought into stadiums still all across Europe. Um, I mean, it's okay. Yes, I know you, you might say, well, okay, what do you mean? We've now got to pat down every single, every single person who comes into a stadium. Well, I mean, I don't want it to get to that stage, but there's something, surely it can't be beyond the, the wits of security. Because, well, what are they doing? This, the job is security. Yeah, You've and, got and to be just to, to stop, stop you there, you talk about patting everyone down. I have to say, uh, going to Birmingham City, they do do that. They pat everybody down at Birmingham. Well, I mean, no, okay. I mean, in the end, you might, when it, well, the first few games, first season or two seasons even, that it happens, you might think, oh, this is a bit irritating. But in the end, if you're safe, you're going to appreciate it. Um, and it's, in the end, that is, that is, you can't just, you can't be all misty-eyed about you know, the romanticism of really, really intense Eastern European atmospheres, which when when flares don't go off, I think, fantastic. You know, when it's not incidents like this, I think that's what I like, a real challenge and intense atmosphere. But, you know, that's that's not our priority. The priority is, is safety. Um, now, I would, what I would say about Russian grounds is that the security is very, very tight. And I'd almost argue tighter than a lot of European countries that I've watched football in. Um I mean, even when I even when I go to Oralia Kassenberg, I I have to go through three layers of security just to get into the press area, and they know me. Um, so it's um, that's one thing I'm slightly more positive about in, with regards to next year. But more specifically, this incident that you mentioned, Thomas, it's the stupidity of the fans. You know that what on earth is the point? It's against Maribor. Why fire a flare? Against, um, uh, to aimed at the referee, apparently, um, you know exactly what is going to happen on two levels. One, the club very, very likely will risk some sort of a stadium closure or ban or fine or something. Okay, I guess the fans themselves may not care if it's a fine. Um, but you know, that's another gripe of mine. Um, but also the image of the country. They know what Western media is now going to make out of this. There's going to be an absolute field day saying, oh, it's going to be absolute hell in Russia. And it's just, idiots a minority ruining it for the rest of people i i those two things annoy the hell out of me so um i just think we've got to wait and see what happens from uefa now yeah i think that last point you make is absolutely spot on it tends to be a, a minority and i think uefa i imagine it wouldn't surprise me if they do a, a stadium closure to be honest or you know really limit the number of fans anyway but toka what would your message be to people thinking about the World Cup next year and they've seen that incident and they're thinking, oh, I'm not sure now. What would your message be to those fans? I think you guys as, as Englishmen has a, a bit of a different relationship to flares and stuff like that than we have in most other countries because, okay, I, I don't, I'm not a, a fan of, of, uh, of flare guns like the one that's used in Maribor, of course, 
but like the rest of the flats are spots uh, lit and and just kept in the stands. I don't really see any problems with that. I think it gives it a fine atmosphere and it's it's so easy to get into the stadium. So it has nothing to do with the lack of, of security or control. I mean, the fans are, are very well uh, checked before the games, but it's it's just very easy for them to get into the stadium. So there's not much much to do. Um, but of course, it was a foolish mistake by Spart, a foolish decision by Spartak fans and. So stupid in the first game. I mean, we saw with Siska a few years ago how the fans really destroyed the team's chances of, of getting out of, out of the group because they simply had to play without fans for, for the entire group stage. Um, regarding the World Cup, my, my point is don't really worry about it. I mean, this was one guy who fought, a, a couple of guys who fought a shot a flare into the pitch. So it shouldn't really affect the World Cup at all. It's, uh, I know some people want to make this a really big thing, but I think you really you, you have to keep the perspectives and you have to remember, okay, what what was it actually that happened? And it was I don't want to diminish it and, and say it's not a problem, but it's it's a, some people who shoot a fly into the pitch. It's not a, a full blown riot, or it's not like what we saw in Marseille and during the Euro last year or anything. It's on a much much smaller scale. Yeah, just before we move on to the Europa League games, I'd just like to sort of say myself, I know, and I'm sure you both, you guys are aware that the Russian security forces are having a big crackdown on these sorts of people prior to the World Cup. And I think they're pretty much trying to guarantee that these sorts of incidents won't be happening at the World Cup next year. But let's move on to the Europa League now. And Toki, you mentioned earlier about uh, minnows in the Europa League and Vardar, the first ever Macedonian team to uh, take part in a European major group stage. Uh, thrashed 5-0 by Zenit St. Petersburg. Andrew, stunning performance after a bit of a blip of late. Oh, just absolutely wonderful. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't care if you're a Zenit fan or not. Just watching that display was... Um, it was, just, it was as, as powerful as it should be. I mean, you know, as so many times we've just said just now, we should be beating... You know, you talk about a big team like Spartak or Zenit. They should be beating the smaller teams. And it's true to an extent, but they, you, you still got to do it. <laughs> and yet again, uh, Alexander Kukorin was just absolutely breathtaking. I mean, this, this, this is a man at the top of his game. Um, and you know, there was his, his second header. It was just quite amusing for me, but <laughs> the ball comes over Zuba and Zuba, of course, he's not been playing much this season at all. Um, and it's exactly the sort of header that Zuba would have loved because, well, being a big lad, big lad, he can get his get his nod on the end of it. Um, and there was Kukorin. Uh, Kukorin lays on the goal for him afterwards, anyway. So I just, it was just a brilliant performance. Really, really was good. I don't, I don't buy into people saying it doesn't matter because it's um, a small Macedonian team. Um, you've still got to go there, and for them being their first European game. What do you think the atmosphere is going to be like? You know, you take a one nil, you take a two nil, but Zanit just ah, just fantastic. And you know, it's I think it's important to really put a lot of goals past the the games like this, where um, you know, you before the campaign, you're going to be looking at it saying that's the game we want to dominate. Start the campaign off on a positive note, and uh, yeah, like you say, a couple of nil nil draws in the league recently, perfect antidote rattle for you a few goals uh, in Europe. So, yeah, what a what a result. Really, really good game. Yeah, I mean, Toka, what was your take on that performance? Because it was fantastic, wasn't it? 
Oh, it definitely was. I mean, I don't, I don't think you can dispute that at all. I really like, I really enjoyed seeing Senna play with a, a full Russian front line with the Kukurin, Tuba and, and Polos. That's something we haven't seen in a, in a very long time for them. That was, that was quite romantic. And of course, the way they just closed the game, I mean, they go up 2-0 after just 20 minutes. Then it was basically over by then. And that's, that, that was Sparta. That's what Sparta should have done really. But, uh, and, they just, and then they just kept going after that. That was also a pleasure. I mean, Sometimes you see teams when they go up 2-0 or 3-0, they start to relax, they start to just pass the ball around to, to finish the game without too much trouble, but, but Senate kept press, pushing on and kept playing football. It was, it was really a joy to watch. It's, it's impossible to say anything else. It was, it was a great performance. They're off to a great start now. Obviously in a, in a group this close, um, the goal difference could also play a point. So, um, so yeah, winning 5-0 away in, uh, in, in, in any European group stage, really, because we have to remember that there are no, no, no bad teams in the European group stages, no matter what the press say. So, uh, yeah, that, it, was, it was a perfect start, and surely they, they got a lot of confidence after a win like that. Yeah, I mean, just a, just a bit of a comment about Kokorin, really, Andrew, and to, to you as well, Token. You know when he's through on the, for Zuba's goal, where he's through on the goalkeeper, and he sort of does that li- lovely little flick to Zuba, and Zuba managed yeah. to score. I think it's great, and it's gone on all the highlight reels, obviously. But I have to say, from my own point of view, as somebody who rarely ever scores when he plays football, I'm thinking, if that's me, I'm just shooting there, even if it's just my first goal. So I have to be honest, that's, that irritated me very slightly. It was great, but it, it did irritate me slightly. Um, just, just a quick thing about that forward line that Toka mentioned. Do you think that we will see that now in the league? Because obviously with that that Russian front line, it's not going to cause a problem with the foreign element. But then you brought in the likes of Rigoni and stuff, so where do they all fit in? Well, we, we covered this a little bit about the where the foreigners will fit in in our, our one of our recent pods, didn't we? And I, to answer your question in short form, Tom, so I'd say I don't think we're likely to see this, certainly not um, long term, but I do think it will be a setup we will see on occasion, um, perhaps when you know, perhaps when the likes of Paredes need a rest or Mamana need a rest or whatever it is. Um, because it is, if you, if you think about it logically, you've got, you've got the size of physical presence of Juba, you've got the pace and creativity of Polos, and I think Polos is crossing, his um, assisting is excellent, and then you've got the intelligence and all-round brilliance of Kokorin. It's actually a very, very good mix on paper. It should work. And it did work, of course, um, in the the game against Vardar. So I think I don't think I don't think Drewsy is likely to lose his place uh in the long term, but I think it is a light a forward line we will see from time to time. because uh, like we mentioned, Cranviter, Matthias Cranviter looks like being one of the Argentinians well probably the Argentinian to miss out on the a first choice place in the lineup, but to give him a few games, it might work out that way. So, um, or even Christian Nabora. Um, so, yeah, I think long term, no, but on occasion, perhaps we'll see this Russian front line in the league. And Toko, uh, Zenit, of course, got Real Sociedad at home next. You know, Sociedad beat Rosenborg the other night. I can't remember the exact scoreline off the top of my head, actually. But, you know, these two are the favourites for the group. So that's a huge match for Zenit there. They've got to take the home win, surely. Yeah, at least, at least get a draw. The only thing they, they can't afford to lose that game. And I don't, to be honest, I don't think they will. I think they, they look, they look pretty good this season. And, and they should, they should be able to get a point, at least one point at, at home against the Real Sociedad. Um, 
And uh, I watched actually I watched the uh, Sociedad Rosenborg game uh, uh, part of it because obviously Rosenborg have uh, have Lord Bentner, so I have to follow how how he's doing up there. Uh, and they were they were quite poor. I'll be honest about that. They, that was that was an awful game actually. I expected more from them after they sent out Ajax in the qualification round, but Rosenborg were really really poor against Sociedad. Uh, but yeah, I mean Senna should get at least one point against Sociedad, and and I, I'm fairly confident they will. They've, they've looked quite quite uh, strong recently. So at at home against Sociedad, it it will be a massive game for them, and arguably arguably the biggest game for them on on the new stadium uh, against a top top tier European opponent. And I think it will be an excellent atmosphere, and, and they should really put uh, Sociedad under pressure. Okay, and then finally on to the final uh, Europa League game that we're covering this week. Uh, probably the, say, usually we say the say the best or last, but we've saved the worst till last. It was Copenhagen nil, uh, Lokomotiv Moscow nil. Andrew, what? I mean, I, I'm watching the highlights actually on TV. I think they showed they showed Jefferson's Farfan. Uh, was it Jefferson Farfan in the side of the net there? I think they showed that for about five yeah. seconds, and then that was the whole highlights for the game. <laughs> yeah, it's um, there's, there's not really a great deal to say about it, although. Well, I guess if you're going to clutch at straws in a positive sense, and that's kind of my role against you two pessimists on here, I'll have to say a point away from home. I mean, it's it's not original, but it is a point away from home. Um, Copenhagen, much as Token may disagree, they're not the worst side in the competition. So, you know, it's it's um, it's a clean sheet. It's uh, no injuries. It's a point away from home. It's not exciting. Nobody's going to add it to their DVD of the season reel, but it, it, it could have it could have been worse. I mean, that's about as positive as I can be, and 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 you know, I do my best to be positive. But it is a point. It is a point away from home. Yeah, I think I saw on your Twitter feed that you said it was like watching Locomotive last season. That that's not a good thing. No, it definitely isn't. Uh, apart from the cup, se- cup final, last season was pretty much horrible for Lokomotiv. Twice about the cup final. Less of that, Toka. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they played completely without uh, creativity in the offense. But in the end, I think I think Yuri Simon, he got what he came for. He, he got that one point. That That's what he set his team up to do. They asked to a decent start. They have a clean sheet, and and they've got a draw in the in the most difficult game in the group stage. I'm pretty confident that both uh, Lokomotiv and uh, Copenhagen will advance from this group. They are by far the two strongest teams on paper. So, getting a draw away in the first game against the 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 strongest competition for for the first place in the group that's that's a decent start to the to the group stage. And I think that's exactly the same Simon had, uh, thought before the game started. Okay, we'll come here, get a draw, and then home to Moscow, and they can. They can finish it all at home. Um, it wasn't exciting. It was quite boring, and uh, but it was effective. Uh, you have to give them that. Yeah, I take it they've both they've got a Zlin up next from the the Czech Republic. I, I assume we're all thinking they're gonna they're gonna win that one. Oh, and the next the next games are, are simply must win games for Lokomotiv. You can defend getting a point against Copenhagen, but they have to. To get three points against both uh, the Czech side and, and Sheriff from Moldova, that's that's no excuses for those games. Would you say they have to take? Uh, I'm just trying to work this. Would you say they have to take twelve points, Andrew, out of those four fixtures? Um, they really ought to be targeting it. Uh, I reckon they could probably get away with a draw against one of them mathematically. Um, Copenhagen at home, they would have to really. Aim for they've got to, got to be aiming for a win against Copenhagen at home. But let's just say 
worst case scenario there, you drop points against Copenhagen, drop points against one of the other two, they still have three points from those three games, add three wins um, against the the other two and, a, and a, one of them being away from home. And that gives you 12 points. 12 points will almost, almost get you first place, definitely get you through. Um, uh, it, it, it depends on what sense you're asking. Do they have to get 12 points? From the fan satisfaction point of view, absolutely yes. Mathematically for progression, Realistically, no. Um, but I think they will do. I think they will get the 12 points in those those four games. Okay, perfect. Let's move on to the, the next topic now, which is uh, Ararat Moscow. And now, Toka, this was a team that was formed in this year, sort of made a big mark on Russian football, but they've um, there have been a lot of rumours flying around in recent weeks. I mean, I think uh, September the 5th, I think some news came out. So that's about 11 days ago from now. So about 12, 13 days from when the listeners are going to be listening to this. Um Alexander Grigorian, the manager, former Anjimar, of course, manager at Ararat, was saying the club's going to close and that's it, the, the money's gone. So, obviously, a bit of a dramatic thing there. I mean, let's be honest, this is not rare in Russian football, but it's obviously it's quite high profile with the signings that Ararat made in the summer. So, if you can, Toka, which I'm sure you're able to, is uh, just give the listeners a bit of a sort of a quick biography of the history of Ararat Moscow. Yeah, I mean, they only exist, existed for a couple of months, but there's, there's enough to tell. I think we, when you speak about, about, uh, this club, you have to, to understand the historical context. So we have to go a bit back in time to, to get the full picture. I think that's important. Uh, obviously the club, maybe there are some fine smackers out there who, who know Aravan Yerevan from Armenia. If the, if not, that's the club they're named after. It's a historic, the biggest club in Armenia, won the Soviet double in 1973. They, they were really good in the 70s, had some uh, second places in the cup and second places in the league as well. They beat Bayern Munich in uh, in European competition. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the big historic team of of, uh, of Armenia. And uh, out of that is, of course, the a holy mountain for Armenians. It's where Noah's Ark is believed to to rest these days. It's currently located in uh, in Turkey, of course, to, to to much despair and pain for the Armenian people. And the reason I'm talking so much about Armenia uh, here, which could seem a bit strange when we're talking about a Russian club, is because uh, out of that Moscow is in fact an Armenian club. It's for the Armenian people of Moscow. It's Armenian. Um, People who, who founded the club and it's simply aimed at, at all the Armenians living and working in, in Moscow and Russia. So it has really strong historical roots to, to Armenia. Um, the, 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 the founder of the club and the, the key player is, is one of Andrew's old friends, actually. I think uh, he might be better at telling about him. But uh, the former Ural sports director, Valery um, Hanishan, I'm not sure I pronounced his name right, but... Uh, Quite an infamous character in Russia. Uh, he had a good stint with uh, Ural, who he led to the Premier League, and he made some good signings. He built a strong club, laid the foundation to, to what we see today, you can say. Uh, but he also has some, to put it mildly, some quite disastrous, <laughs> quite disastrous involvements in uh, in Russian and, and uh, football in general. But for example, he was one of the men behind Torpedo Amabir, where they hired Patrick Carpin a few years ago, and the ambitions was to build a new great site and come to the Premier League. But instead, they were relegated from the FNL and the club went bankrupt, and now they're largely irrelevant. He also took over an Armenian club, which also went bankrupt and had to withdraw from their meeting Premier League. And obviously, this really hurt the sporting integrity of the league, and yeah, it really threatened to pull down the entire Armenian Premier League, actually. So, uh, 
to move on to this summer, what happened after the club was founded. This, they started the, the season in the second division, the professional football league, the center zone of the, the Muscovite clubs, and they made some huge headlines. They signed Roman Pavlichenko, former locomotive in Russia, and Tottenham as the, the main star, but they also bought uh, Ishmailov, uh, who played a lot of he played uh, a lot of seasons in uh, in Portugal, a former Russian international. They bought Igor Lebedenko, who played for Lokomotiv, and Tedek Grasny. So they signed a lot of really good players. There's also Alexei Repko, a former Russian international. So really some prominent names, some names with fancy of experience. And, and the owners of the club um, and the people behind the club promise, oh, this is not a, a short-term pro- a project. This is a long-term. We're in for the long haul. We want to come to the Premier League. And they said the goal of the first season was to get to the FNL, the, the second tier of Russian football, and really to, to, to give the Armenian Russia something to be proud of and add those sort of a new powerhouse uh, club in Moscow. But yeah, that's, that's not what, what happened. Let's, <laughs> let's say that. Yeah, so we talk about uh, Valery Havanesian there. And um, the rumours are that he has basically walked out, he walked out of the club, stole 20 million rubles. I have to, I have to stress that he denies that before any sort of legal people come on to me. But so he's supposedly done that. He's denied it. Um, and like I said, uh, Grigorian said on, on the 5th of September, I think around the 4th or 5th, he said the club is going to close on the 8th, so I, a couple of days later after their final game, which was on the Friday night. However, on the 9th, the uh, the club then got a new owner in the form of Aram Gabrilyanov, uh, um, who is a director at Izvestia newspaper, quite a famous Russian newspaper, very historic, goes back a, a long time, even before before the revolution. Um, but, Andrew, this, to me, as soon as the club formed, I have to be honest, I was sceptical, because <laughs> these sorts of fairy tales never last long in Russia. No, you're right, absolutely, Tom. We've seen a hell of a lot of them um, start up, promise great things, and then disappear within a few years. Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it's just the, the what we've seen so far of this club, of Ararat, is, is very unsettling, to say the least. They're, they've already brought in and fired a manager um, uh, in within two or three months um, of existence. Yes, they managed to bring in the, the big-name stars, and that's something that just made my heart sink a little bit because... That seems to be the approach of a lot of short-sighted owners in Russian football, unfortunately. Bring in the big owners, get a load of noise, a lot of energy, a lot of support around the side, um, all based around the names on the pitch without actually taking care of the long-term development of the club, making sure the finances are at least stable or at least working towards being something resembling self-sufficient. However, what I will say is, if they can survive through to the end of this season, um, then I actually would start to, I'd start to have a bit more faith in them because they, for one, they're not linked to, but not linked to state funding. And that's something we've covered a lot on this podcast in the past. And it's been one of the mistakes. Well, I say one of the mistakes, just one of the things that needs to be sorted out for a lot of clubs. It's what holds back, um, a lot of clubs from actually developing because they just simply do not have the money to put into player signings, player development, training facilities, whatever it is. And if they can get up to the Faniel, and it looks like they will do, they're top of their second division league. Roman Pavlichenko scored six goals already. Um, and 
if they can keep that momentum going, get up to the FNAL, uh, perhaps be able to draw in a few more quality players. Um, you know, I've, I've read that they are, they're not planning to hang around getting up to the Premier League. Their intention is to go straight up within two, three seasons maximum. Um, whether they'll be able to do that is another matter. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just hope that the, that the finances remain private and that they remain reliable. I don't think they should go overboard. They should just simply build momentum from here. Uh, if they can, then perhaps, perhaps we will be proven wrong. But I, I'm with you on this one, Thomas, initially. I was very suspicious. I mean, I'm looking at the, the fixture list here, and um, I don't know to actually have a game today. It's in about uh, three hours' time, two and a half hours' time. So if the club haven't gone bust by then, they will be playing today. But, um, Toka, do you... I mean, Andrew talks about whether they'll last the end of the season. Personally, I'm not convinced. I don't think this has finished by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, yes, they've got a new owner, but to me, it's all a bit dodgy, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, and I think this is a classic example from uh, from Russian football. We have these owners who come in and say, "Oh, we want to be in the Premier League. We want to play in Europe in three or four seasons." Obviously, they should go to the to the FNL when you sign Pavlyuchenko and Lebedenko and these players. But moving from the FNL to the Premier League is that's not easy. There are a lot of clubs competing there, and they just don't seem to have any sense of real reality. They they come in have completely unrealistic expectations of how how quickly you can achieve things, and then. As well, when you don't uh, have success on on day one, they get tired of the project and and lose out. Andrew said he was optimistic as long as the the club remained private. But let's just remember that just because they're private doesn't mean that they're sustainable. I mean, they still depend on these owners on the on the on the people financing the club. I mean, if, if someone pulls out, the club will go bankrupt tomorrow. So it's not like they have money in the bank to to last and stick around and. It's not like they have an, any a, a fan base or any historic roots as a as a club itself that that gives it any people any reason to believe it will stay around for the long haul and give people a reason to save the club. So it it really is a a, a very fragile fundament that the, the club is built on right now. And yeah, as you said, Tom, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if it closed before the season. Now, I, I don't think we'll talk about Adelaide Moscow in, in five years. That's that's for sure. At, uh, at least not in a, in a way that means they're still around. And just to talk about um, Havanesian himself here, um, I'm just re- reading here that he was watching matches of Ararat from the bench. So, <laughs> you know, in with the manager and everything. I mean, apparently he wasn't giving instructions, but I find that hard to believe. Um, Toka, surely now, I think he's been kicked out of Russian football, basically. But if he, he if he does manage to worm his way back, which to be honest to me is probably quite likely, we're going to have to keep an eye on that club. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, as long as you have money, you're always welcome in in Russian football, and <laughs> it's not like there's a lot of money to go around. And obviously, he he seems like the kind of guy who who wants to invest his money and spend some money on football. So surely it won't take too long before we we talk about him again. Uh, and yes, as you said, when when a guy, when a, a president is watching the game from the from the coaching bench, obviously that not a, that's not a good sign. I mean, that, that's definitely not something the uh, the head coach wants, and puts a lot of pressure on him, and it creates some some blurry lines about who's in charge of the game and everything. So that's that's just another clear example of how big a mess the club is, really. Um, 
so yeah, it's <laughs> that that's just horrible news, really. One thing, guys, or one thing I would say about the president being on the bench, I agree completely, and certainly in principle anyway, um, but, you know, it's not like we don't see this sometimes in Russian football. I'm, I'm thinking personally of Ural Yekaterinburg. Grigory Ivanov is always on the bench right next to Alexander Tachanov. And if anything, he's the one who gets up and screams instructions on the pitch to the Ural players. They certainly know that he's the man they fear. Tarkhanov's the man that coaches them, um, but Ivanov is the man they, they really fear. And, you know, when Zanit came to Yekaterinburg, um, Alex Shatov, of course, ex, uh, ex-Ural player, of course, he went straight up to Ivanov and had a long conversation. It was very respectful, but he was very much, not in awe, but certainly respectful of Ivanov. And he's a sort of character who really does dominate from the bench. And, with, when you've got somebody who actually has a sense of morals and is grounded, like Tahanov, then he'll survive. If you're completely vacuous of morals like Vadim Skripchenko, then you'll fail. Um, so it's a test of character of the manager if he, if he will survive in that atmosphere. I certainly agree with you, though. It's a situation to keep your eyes on. Um, and, I mean, what I would like just to point out, fellas, what I was saying about being positive was it very much hinges upon them surviving the season um, and actually I don't think that is a given like you guys suggested I think I think there is every chance given the history of these type of clubs these size of clubs anyway um, who have sprung up and have, have disappeared again quickly I think they, they may well go that way too but, but I mean I, I you know my you know my role on the pod I've got to try and balance out um, the, the, the pessimism so um I don't think they will survive, but if they do, I think there's there's a bit of hope. Um, if the investment, if they get promoted and they're following what their plan was, I think there's more chance the investment will stay. It's, there's no guarantees in Russian football, but that's just my hope, anyhow. So this story is certainly one to keep an eye on for the listeners uh, at Moscow. We'll see how they go for the rest of the season. But um, as we're coming towards the end of the pod, guys, uh, as per usual, we're going to do the only in Russian football moment. Uh, I get. I hope you have you both remembered. Just checking. And then if I get anything, you'll tell me, Thomas. Oh well, that's a relief. Uh, well, we'll come to you first, Toker, just in case, because Andrew was silent there, so I'm, I think he's he's scrambling around in his brain to try and think <laughs> of an only in Russian football moment. So we'll come to you first, Toker. What's your only in Russian football moment for this podcast? You know, for the past, it, it was difficult for me to, to choose, actually, because I had I found two really good ones. Um, the first one is inspired, actually, from today's Premier League games. We have uh, a game in uh, Khabarov. We have at Lillen Stadium, we have uh, SPA playing against Ahmad uh, Grosny. That's at Lillen Stadium, first of all, a stadium name you would only find in Russia. A team in the Far East, traveling thousands of kilometers uh Playing against, and then the guest team is of course a, a team named after uh, a local warlord, named uh, controlled by the a sort of a dictator <laughs> of an, uh, a republic in, here in Russia. So, I mean, just all the all the circumstances around this uh, Ska uh, Ahmad game is just. I, I think it's it's a bit crazy when you think about it. Then it's definitely an only in Russia moment for me. Okay, just just before you come in there, Andrew. Uh, just to mention to the listeners, if they're not aware, a few week, a few months ago, we did a, a special on football in Chechnya, which of course focuses on uh, Ahmad Grozny. So uh, Google that; you'll find it on the Russian Football News website and on the SoundCloud page. So, Andrew, what's your only in Russian football moment? Well, 
As usual, I'm going to try and be positive here. And my only in, only in Russia football moment uh, is is something that most Western listeners will probably not expect to be be the case. But um, you think of the big games, you think of the really intense derbies. The it is slightly amusing me the title, the All Russia Derby between <laughs> between two clubs in one city, between CSK and Spartak. But the last one I went to, um, there were fans. And this is relevant to Thursday night, of course, when Cologne fans invaded London practically and a lot of them got into the home section uh, of Arsenal's uh, stadium, the Emirates Stadium. Well, a few Spartak fans had got into the home section of the VEB arena. And, you know, it wasn't a packed out section, but there were words spoken, um, perhaps not the most polite ones, but within about three seconds... The security had come along to politely move them along, um, and everything carried on as normal. And the, the reason I say it's an only in Russia moment is that people, they, the fans around were annoyed that there was a, a, a fan of the opposition in their section, but they just got on with it. They knew that it, there wasn't any point dragging it out any further. They, the security came along, it was tidied up, and everybody got on with actually supporting the game. Um, and that's the sort of, you know, that's, that's the sort of fan culture that I like to see. Yeah, sure, you, you say a few bad words at the opposition, but it doesn't take over the entire day. You focus on the game itself, and and that for me is my only in Russian moment. I wish I'd put you last, and then we could have ended on a high. I'm so annoyed at myself. I should have just predicted that you were going to do something positive, and you could have predicted I'm going to do something ne- negative. Obviously, um, <laughs> <laughs> my only in Russian football moment it, it actually comes from. Uh, about a week ago was when the RFU finally announced their um, their friendlies for the next international break. Most cl- most countries have their friendlies planned far in advance, but no, Russia, of course, big World Cup on the horizon, needs to be perfectly prepared. But no, they decide to do their uh, friendly organisation just just a month in advance, and they are playing uh, South Korea and uh, Iran. Who Toker, I know that you are a, a big a big fan of, and you're a big fan of this friendly. Oh yeah, it's almost as good as when they met the Lithuania just before the Euro. So it, it's great to see that uh, Mutko is prioritizing meeting some quality opponents at this crucial stage of the country's football history. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just have to add to, to the listeners, of course, we all saw the farce of the uh, the Dinamo friendly. And after that game, you mentioned Mutko. Mutko said, uh, we'll, be, um, we'll be meeting some stronger strong opponents as well in the future. And I was thinking, well, who's that going to be? Like Ural, Ufa, Rostov. What, where, does the, where does the line get drawn? But um, anyway, just to uh, finish off after that bit, we'll uh, we'll go through the social media things. Andrew, before we do that, though, it's, it's the Predictions League. Ah, yes. Predictions League. Exciting times at the moment. Um, for those of you who are following us uh, on Facebook, Keep an eye out for each week. We we run the predictions game. Dead simple. You predict all eight games, um, what score you think it will be, and you get three points if you get the perfect scoreline. One point if you get the perfect, or if you get the results but the wrong scoreline. Um, and what we've recently started is a predictions cup. So we're going to do a, a little knockout competition. We had the first round last week, um, and we'll do another cup later in the season. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, but it's never too late to join in. We have lots of games based on average points per week. 
So even if you join in after the first week, you can still play on a level playing field in one part of our game. It's a lot of fun. Get in, get involved. And um, I would like to say, if you if you are a follower of Russian Football News, please sign up to the newsletter as well. Just head to the Facebook page and drop us a direct message with your email address. We'll add you to the mailing list and you get the newsletter and all the news about Predictions League and some of our best articles going up. So, uh, yeah, definitely get involved on the Facebook page. That's mostly the hub for our interaction with you, our loyal followers. And just a quick moment, who's top of the Predictions League at the moment? Do you have that in hand? Uh, it is Martin Lowe, our, our own writer. Um, he's one point ahead. Um, I think we have, I think we have two or three writers in the top ten, but it's very close at the top. Only about, um, I think it's about eight or nine points separating the top ten. So, um, all to play for, definitely. Perfect. And uh, Toka, Andrew mentioned the newsletter there, and he mentions how there's usually a couple of editors' picks in there. So, just for those who haven't had the latest newsletter, what pieces would you pick out on the website? I think. Um with the discussion we had today, I think it's, uh, you should definitely go read our piece about Adelaide Moscow. Actually, it was written before all these scandals started. So there was a bit of an optimistic tone, but still there was also the, uh, <laughs> it was also predicted that, well, this will probably not end well. It is after all Russian football. So I definitely think you should go read out that piece. Uh, it's about our, one of our great writers, Rob Dylan and it, it really is a, is, is a good piece, although much has happened with the club since it was uh, written. Okay, perfect. And just uh, for the social media accounts, we are uh, Russian Football News on Facebook, as Andrew says, at Russ Football News on Twitter, uh, the VK page uh, for, the, for the Russian listeners primarily, but of course foreign language listeners are also, well, non-Russian speaking listeners are also welcome to check that out. That's uh, Russian Football News on Contact here. Uh, Instagram is at Russ Football News. We've got some lovely pictures going up on there from our experiences in Russian football. And um, just, uh, I don't think I've missed anything there, have I, Token? We have a YouTube channel as well. Oh, perfect. Go on. Yeah, uh, at Russian, it's just Russian Football News. Okay, that was, <laughs> I thought it'd be a bit of a, a party, but no, you just sort of read it quite blandly. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Toko, we'll stick with you. Just for the listeners on the World Football Index, who of course uh, host this great podcast, uh, your um, your personal Twitter handle for those. Yeah, you can find me at the uh, Toke Thielade. That's T O K E T H E I L A D E. Okay, perfect. And Andrew, your one. Uh, my Twitter handle at Andrew M I J Flint. Perfect. And uh, I am Thomas underscore Giles. That's G I L E S underscore UK. So Thomas underscore Giles underscore UK. Um, thanks again to the World Football Index for hosting this podcast. Go to their website, check out all the great podcasts from football around the world. So you've got European football, you've got South American football, and you've got lots of tactics podcasts as well. Um, again, do subscribe to this podcast on the various methods. I'm sure you all know them plenty well, SoundCloud, iTunes, all that business. So do subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you in a couple of weeks just before the uh, Spartak, Siska, sort of Moscow amalgamation where uh, Liverpool and Man United come to stay in the Russian capital for a couple of days prior to the Champions League matches. So, see you then.